CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Broadcasting around the nation, on your radio, on your TV, and online. This is the Bill Press Show. It is the Bill Press Show, and welcome to a little special holiday chat with a couple of good friends of ours here from the White House, from Congress, a couple of reporters who are frequent guests on the Bill Press Show. And we want to just take a look here at the end of the year and the end of the Obama administration uh, and the brink of the Trump administration on what's going on and what, can we, what we can expect. Uh, Jen Bendry covers the White House and the Congress for the Huffington Post. Jen, good to see you. Thank Hi. you for being here. And uh, Justin Sink, he is the big-time White House reporter for Blooming, Bloomberg News. Hello, Justin. Nice hey. to see you. Thanks yeah. for having me. All right, you guys. Uh, and uh, so we anticipate a lot of changes um, and we'll talk about the changes but also President Obama has been uh, is very busy I think kind of trying to secure his legacy and maybe a little concerned about what part of, how much of his legacy will be left um, after Donald Trump uh, takes office let's start right there first of all when he looks back what do you think are going to be the he's going to be able to brag about Jen uh, what what is the Obama legacy well, obviously, the Affordable Care Act is his signature issue because it is also known as Obamacare. So, mm -hmm. right, <laughs> it's his name. Um, that stands out to me above everything else. There's also um, the Dodd Frank changes that they made to financial regulations. Uh, they're very proud of uh, repealing "Don't Ask, Don't Tell." Mm -hmm. They're mm -hmm. very proud of yep. saving the economy, which kind of gets overlooked sometimes when people tick off his accomplishments. Uh, from when he first came in office. It was pretty bad back then. Um, he also is pretty proud of his judicial legacy. He's put a lot of very diverse people on the federal bench, and that's you know the least of whom are Supreme Court justices. Right. But beyond, well beyond the Supreme Court, he's put not just a lot of judges all over federal courts, but a lot of women, a lot of people of color, uh, record-breaking numbers of LGBT judges, you know, all kinds mm -hmm. of diversity. So he's, I know he's proud of that. When he looks at a foreign policy front, Justin. Yeah, so I think uh, <coughs> I, a big accomplishment that the White House really likes to highlight is the Iran nuclear deal, which I think yeah. was evidence of um, an approach that he was preaching even before he was elected to office and, and was heavily criticized for on the campaign trail of engaging with countries that we typically see as adversarial. Look at Cuba as another mm -hmm. example of mm -hmm. warming relations there. Opening to Cuba. Um, where we've got flights and cruise ships and you know telecom companies going down there now. So that's going to be difficult to fully pull back if, mm -hmm. if that's something that Donald Trump tries to do. And then I think there's the broader sort of foreign policy vision of less U.S. military intervention in the Middle East. And so uh, you've seen 
near full withdrawal from Iraq and Afghanistan. You have obviously the killing of Osama bin Laden is something that'll be probably in the first paragraph of any mm-hmm. history that, that's written about um, this administration. You also have Syria, where um, the president practiced what he preached uh, in terms of not getting the U.S. you know to intervene in a large scale military fa- you know fashion, but we've seen the consequences of that where hundreds of thousands of people have died and, and it's right. been a brutal sort of... You wouldn't necessarily chalk that up as part of the positive legacy of the... Right. I, well, yeah. I mean, it, it, I think it it all is worth evaluating within the rubric of, okay, he came into office saying, I'm going to be a different president on foreign policy than George W. Bush was. Right. And I think with Iraq, you saw some of the consequences of going to intervene in countries where um, it is extremely difficult to do so. And in Syria, you saw some of the difficulties in, in not intervening. So in, if, I think you guys both summed up what are the what he would consider legacy on the domestic and the, and the foreign policy front. Now then the question is, what might remain <laughs> uh, a couple of years into the Donald Trump administration? You start with Obamacare. That, and you talk to members of Congress all the time. That's going. To, that's their number one priority, isn't it? To get rid of Obamacare. Well, we can't forget here that they've been talking about getting rid of Obamacare for True. six years. Good point. Six yeah. Six years. Yeah. And they've they've also said for six years that they have a replacement that they just don't want to show yet. <laughs> they, <laughs> they can't really describe it all. But, yeah. but um, you know, yes, that is, the, that is what they say is their number one priority. Mitch McConnell says there'll be a vote like in the first. Yeah, it's like the first one of the first votes they're going to take in January. Their plan right now is to repeal Obamacare, but then have a three to four year delay of replacing it, meaning it will stay in place as they craft their new solution. But they don't have a solution and they haven't for six years. And it's going to be pretty tricky to replace Obamacare without um, gutting. I mean, they, they don't want to gut Obamacare. There are some pieces they want to keep. And they Donald Trump has said that he is supportive of the individual mandate, which is at the heart of Obamacare. Mm-hmm. So it, I, I have a feeling that what's going to happen is there's going to be a lot of uh, fuss about replacing it. And they'll have some hearings and they'll talk about the parts they like and the parts they don't like. And in the end, I think they'll come up with something that kind of resembles Obamacare. <laughs> uh, maybe some tweaks here and there, but fundamentally it's the same thing. They'll call it something else. They'll try to pass that and declare it a huge victory and the end of Obamacare. Uh, yeah. Uh, By I, the way, jo- yeah. of you jump in any time. Uh, I mean, I, that is an optimistic vision, I think, <laughs> for how this might play out, but I think... But maybe realistic too. I mean, it's going to be. Would you agree that with Jen, that's going to be harder to re, to repeal and replace than they think? Yes, definitely. But I think the sequester uh, <laughs> is a good lesson in when Congress tries to set up incentives for itself to to act and to to fix a problem. Sometimes electoral politics get in the way, and it it doesn't really matter. And so. I think Republicans, the way that they're gaming this out is, well, they don't want to be held responsible, especially over the next two electoral cycles, for 20 million people losing their health insurance. That's what happens if you repeal Obamacare yeah. fully. Yeah. Now, the question is, once you get past those two elections, what the incentive is for Republicans to actually replace it. And a replacement plan would need to pass through 
a Congress that has proven itself bitterly divided. The only reason we had Obamacare in the first place was Democrats had sweeping majorities in both chambers and the White House, and then were able to use kind of the filibuster as a pivot to ward off any attacks to it in the future. And so unless um, you see one party have kind of dominant control in the way that Republicans do now or Democrats did eight years ago, it's really tough to push through health policy like that. And yes, it's possible that the crisis of 20 million people potentially losing their health care could force congressional action. But, you know, we saw with the sequester where Republicans surely didn't want, you know, massive cuts to the defense budget and Democrats surely didn't want massive cuts to social spending. Right. But yet it happened because getting a, a compromise deal uh, was nearly impossible. And so I think that plus bringing Tom Price, who is somebody who's not just an opponent of Obamacare, but has really made a career out of working hard to, to identify ways to structurally gut the, the um, program, I think it's in a lot more trouble than And he's than the new head of the uh, Department, uh, Department of, of, yeah. of Health, uh, and, Health Human and Human Services, Services <laughs> which is responsible for overseeing right. the implementation uh, uh, of Obamacare. Um, you mentioned, so uh, my, my feeling is like yours, they'll rename it, but it's going to come out. And, and, and I think, you know, I think they'll make changes to it. I just, I don't think that, I, I agree, like the sequester was a complete disaster. They set up a goal right. for something bad to happen and we have to finish, we have to get something done before this bad thing happens. And they didn't. And, and then what happened? We have and it was so bad that everybody said there's no way, no how, and yeah. they would ever let that happen. Well, guess and, what? And, you know, Democrats painted a doomsday scenario, and actually the doomsday scenario didn't happen. So that kind of took away from all the buildup yeah. in the first place. But I, I, don't, I don't think it's the same with Obamacare because, like you said, it is 20 million people and their health care versus, like, Across the board, budget cuts that you know don't really resonate quite the same. Well, I think Democrats and, face kind of an interesting question, right? Which is, do you do you go in just hardline opposing this entire effort, right? Do you go in, draw the line, and say we're not going to be party to this? We're not going to touch it. Huh? We're, we're yeah. like this. Hang yourself with with this rope that you've created. We don't want any ownership. We are the party that is for Obamacare. So that's one sort of congressional strategy. The other is to say. You know, do we think that we can craft a deal where maybe the individual mandate goes out the window? Maybe you can shop across state lines. Maybe the health savings accounts have a bigger role. Maybe you know some things that I don't think you know that that weaken the program in Democrats' eyes or make it more expensive or make it make, make less sense, but don't kind of ruin the fundamental aspect of if you want to buy health care, you can go buy health care and it's somewhat affordable. Uh, and, so, and so I don't know if they decide to play that game or not. And if they do, the, the potential of getting burned politically and on a policy basis. Right. My feeling is that I know Mitch McConnell would just like this. It's very, very simple. We'll just have a vote up or down. Keep it or, or not keep it, it's not going to be that simple. I think it's going to drag out and, and a lot of debate about what stays, what doesn't, what they call it, whatever. But I want to move on to, you mentioned don't ask, don't tell. <coughs> the Obama administration is also uh, proud of the fact that uh, under his watch, uh, the Supreme Court basically said same-sex marriage is, the, is the, the law of the land. 
That's one area, the advances on LGBT rights uh, under the Obama administration, which have been huge. I think he's done more than any other president. Um, I don't see Donald Trump playing there. Do do you? I mean, I I think Donald Trump is kind of a live and let live when it comes to gay rights. Well, I guess it depends on if you listen to the words coming out of his mouth versus yes the people he is picking to run his administration. <coughs> so, I mean, we can all speculate on how he feels personally, right? I mean, he's got friends who are gay. He wasn't Elton John at his wedding performing. I mean, there's there's that, but but look at the people he's chosen but as he his vice camp- president, as his HHS yeah. secretary, as his I mean, name somebody. <coughs> They're all extremely anti-LGBT. So, and these are the people who are going to be overseeing actual policies. Right in in their respective yeah. departments, so I I don't think I don't think same sex marriage is is gonna there's not much they can do at this point, um, but there are plenty of other things that that are already happening at the state level and are happening in Congress that are aimed at chipping away at LGBT rights. The big one right now is there's there are bills called the first uh, First Amendment Defense Act. Um, they're they're in several states and there's now a bill in Congress. And essentially what it does is it allows um, any taxpayer-funded entity, whether it's a business oh, or a oh, nonprofit right. or, an organ- <clears throat> or a government, a federal contractor, um, if the person in charge there uh, doesn't believe in same-sex marriage, they believe marriage is between a man and a woman, then they can deny, they can so state their religious the, reasons for denying you service. This is the Indiana law, which Mike Pence signed, So that was I a guess. RIFRA, which is slightly different. Okay, but same first, principle, basically, isn't it? Fundamentally, yes. It, yeah. the, the the First Amendment Defense Act bills are more sweeping. They they apply to people who have problems with people who are not married to someone of the yeah. opposite sex. So they could affect single moms too, for example. Yeah. A drug counselor could turn away a single mom, for example, because they don't believe that they should be a single mom because God right. tells them that you have to be married. So there are things out there that are percolating at the state level and have succeeded that could certainly come up in Congress, and who knows, maybe they pass. And it's sort of, to me, irrelevant what Donald Trump personally thinks if he's not acting in the way that aligns with his supposed pro-LGBT yeah. views. But for example, Justin, don't ask, don't tell would be very tough to reverse, right? I, I mean, yeah, I think that's true. And I this is maybe we're reversing roles here. I think that this is um, actually an area where you could see reason to be optimistic about Donald Trump. I mean, for all intents and purposes, until five or six years ago, Donald Trump was a New York liberal based on the company he kept, the campaign donations he gave. Uh, You know, certainly he would use um, socially charged rhetoric on the campaign trail, but he never seems to, to have sort of made that a a policy priority for his administration or, you know, on the the laundry list of things that he brings up. I don't remember his talking about these issues at all. LGBT rights? Well, the few times that he did, he said he was all for it. Okay. So there's that. I mean, I I don't think that LGBT... Well, go ahead. Well, and the other... The only only other point I was going to make is Donald Trump, say what you will, but one of his political talents is sort of reading the tea leaves reading which way the wind is blowing and it is blowing in a very concrete and definite direction on this and I would be I would be surprised now he has appointed people who feel very passionately about this to his administration so 
it's possible he goes to the mat for them. But I would be surprised if Donald Trump wants to spend any political capital on this. Mm -hmm. And we know Donald Trump cares deeply about the types of publications and media that will be hammering his administration over any type of issue. I mean, it's one thing to have Vanity Fair making fun of, like, the grill in your basement. Uh, It's another if... (laughs) <laughs> Every newspaper and tabloid in New York is going crazy on you over LGBT issues. And and so I think that I may be more optimistic here than I am on Obamacare. And, and so, yeah, I, I don't know. I think that'll be an interesting. I think I don't think I actually do feel optimistic. I don't want yeah. to suggest that LGBT people should be in a panic necessarily. It's just the question is, how much is Donald Trump going to actually be guiding the ship right. versus being kind of checked out? Right. You know, having tweet storms at 8 a.m. going after whoever criticized him last and having a rally or having an event while he's quietly letting Pence, who is extremely anti-LGBT, work with his pals on Capitol Hill, who he knows all of, who are not particularly LGBT friendly, to not necessarily chip away at marriage or the big ones, but some of the smaller things that maybe people don't pay attention to. If we knew Pence were running the ship, uh, there, there would be real cause for concern. With Mike Pence, because he's he's a he's a, his he's a true, legacy issue is the Rifra yeah, from Indiana. Exactly. Yeah, <laughs> that's and, what he's and, known for, and he's a true believer. Uh, in terms of um, President Obama, also we talked about his legacy. Um, how does how do we rate him in terms of his dealing with the the media? You both, uh, we all three, all three of us go to the White House briefings with some regularity. Uh, questions of. Uh, Access and um, what's the word? Not uh, transparency. Thank you. <laughs> uh, right. Who starts? Justin? Sure. I, well, I, I think a good way to understand. You give them high marks pre- or low marks? Well, I wouldn't. <laughs> maybe a gentleman C on, on this, <laughs> <Yeah>. where <laughs> I think you have to understand his relationship through the press by understanding him a little bit. And so I. You know, I think President Obama and many of the people who work for him understand the fundamental importance of a free press, but also access to the president by the free press. And there is some level of institutional respect for it. And I think a lot of the fear around the incoming administration is whether or not that exists. That being said, I think President Obama is, weirdly for a politician, sort of... um, and introspective and um, not not shy, but he, he doesn't enjoy coming out and bantering with the press in the way Bill Clinton or Ronald Reagan might have. So he, he isn't drawn to that. And there is a pervasive sense among many of their staff, staff, and I suspect that this probably comes from the president himself, that they see a lot of what reporting has become, especially in a, in a social media age, and reporting on the White House beat as silly or overdone or kind of superfluous. Um, and so uh, as a result of that, he's <coughs> it's tough to get him in press conference. It's tough to get him questions. He doesn't spend a lot of time doing yeah. interviews with the reporters who know him and the issues that he's facing the best, and instead prefers either outlets that He's not going to get a hard question that are like mm-hmm. very sympathetic and you know can be buzzy or interesting, but aren't going to ask him a tough question about a policy issue that he's facing, 
or you know he'll sit down with David Remnick or somebody like that and Jeffrey Goldberg and, and spend hours and, and spend hours and hours, but that's more of an intellectual. But I mean, from, I hear from a veteran White House correspondent, and none of the three of us are, that um, that this is the least uh, transparent uh, administration we've ever had, and less access to the president and the key people than than they had under George W. Bush. I I hear that too, and I I also hear from veteran White House correspondents that it gets less transparent with every president. Yeah. So I don't right, know if that's that just has. the case. And it's also taken an interesting turn because because of social media and the ability for the White House to control their own take on news. They have their own in-house video team now and their own social media infrastructure where they can and they have create their own videos and create their own interviews, you know, quote unquote interviews with Obama on camera and and package together something that appears to be newsy in some way and then release it themselves yeah. and basically going yeah. around traditional media which would be more critical of whatever issue it is that they're packaging and pushing out there and I know that's been frustrating for some because people have questions that are more challenging on these topics right. and they don't right. want to just see if you know it's it's like marketing mm-hmm. they're putting up marketing ads when in the press you know you want to cut through that and not just put like a right. you know a nice like shiny veneer on it you know all right so so enough about obama let's talk about now (laughs) look at donald trump i mean we just have not all day to talk about so with donald trump i want to ask you both about policy and about press okay so in terms of policy he talked about a lot right and but then every president has to decide all right what are my priority issues going to be right right what am i gonna what do i want to tackle first um, for Donald Trump, what do you think are his two or three top things that he's really going to want to focus on? Well, my suspicion is that, that you can read a lot out of who he is, which is a developer and a deal maker okay. or something. Right. And so we've already seen him <coughs> approach companies that were considering offshoring or talking about offshoring and offer deals that, you know, if you peel away... It's unclear how much he's actually done versus how much of this is PR, but I do think that we're going to have a, an intense focus on him trying to portray continued growth in manufacturing and preventing offshore. So jobs? So jobs uh, as a general thing. And then the other is, I mean, even though I think it's kind of scoffed at a lot in Washington, I think he wants to build that wall, and <laughs> I think he is going to do whatever he can in the way that, you know, Barack Obama pursued health care when everybody said, you know, health care is impossible in, in Washington, D.C. I think Donald Trump is going to try to find a way to get money to, if not, you know, build the big, beautiful wall right. with, that, well, that he promised to get down there with a shovel and, <laughs> you know. Himself. Yeah, I mean, he, we are. I guarantee you. That in the first year of a Trump presidency, we are going to see him on the border with a shovel cutting a ribbon. <laughs> and whatever, like, however substantive it is, I, that is my deep sort right. of. So, Jeff, both, I, I agree with you on the priorities. I, I do believe jobs, particularly by preventing companies from exporting jobs, but I also think um, infrastructure, money for infrastructure to create jobs. That and building the wall, both of them depend on getting money from Congress 
And Obama tried to get money from Congress for for uh, for in, to infrastructure, create jobs the same way. So, do you think Donald Trump is going to be successful at those two, getting the money from Congress necessary to do those two things? Well, I I have to say I, d- I have a different take on where he's right. going to go. Okay. I I I, yeah, I don't there. think he's going to build a wall. <laughs> Uh, I I think we saw signs of this when, when he when he already <laughs> stepped back and said, well, maybe some of it could be offense. Yeah, which yeah. was like okay, and you know there was an SNL skit where, um, you know, Alec Baldwin is playing Donald Trump, and someone comes in and they're like, sir, we have a problem. We can't we can't build the fence. It costs so much money. We don't know what we're gonna do. And, and then Alec Baldwin is, you know, he's like, oh, all right, forget it, drop it. <laughs> and he's like, sir, this is what we campaigned on. He's like, whatever, it's done, scrapped. And then they went through several things on the same in the same vein right. where he was just like, oh, we can't. That's really hard now. Scrap it. And it was really a funny skit. But I, I, I do kind of think that that's what we're going to see, <laughs> because uh, I maybe he will go to the border with a shovel. That seems more his style. Uh, but yeah, I, don't I, don't, gonna, I, don't I don't think he's going to say <laughs> that he's actually going to get like I don't a think he's going to build a wall all the way down and the I think border. That, but I do think there's going to be he'll do something. He's going to do something. Stuff. But this is the difference between a, 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 a image and optics versus policy. And I think he is the champion of of the, the former and the latter is a whole different ball game. And I don't think that his people want to do this. Well, infrastructure is actually the same thing where we've heard, okay, Donald Trump wants to roll in with a billion-dollar infrastructure <laughs> right, package. Right. But then when you get to the details of it and the reason that it might pass through a Republican Congress is, well, instead of being the federal government is building you know, a billion dollars in new roads and bridges and airports and mm-hmm. all that kind of stuff, it is probably a billion dollars in tax credits to developers who could then you know, build stuff in the way that Donald Trump has built stuff throughout his life. And so I think, again, it's important to sort of look at the optics of how it's going to be painted, which is this massive infrastructure bill, and what it will actually be, which is, are these tax cuts actually spurring new development that wouldn't have existed before, or are they making development that was already going to happen cheaper? And maybe that spurs more growth down the line, but you've got to kind of figure that out. That's what makes infrastructure really interesting because uh, traditionally Democrats love these infrastructure bills, but that's because the government is spending all this money and creating jobs, right? Right. And they're building roads, you know, and bridges and things that people at at large need. But if they go the, if he really does go the tax credit route, not only will he drop, Democrats will not get behind it. But I, I could see some some libertarians and some other Republicans being like, whoa, this is just too much spending in general. Yeah. So just that one's an interesting issue because it could go either way. Not automatic. I think there are two other priorities so I could throw in there that, that, that seems to me that one is NAFTA, um, yeah. that he'd really like to – TPP is not going to happen, but to rescind to the extent that he can't NAFTA. And the other is the Iran nuclear deal, both of them, I think, that are, are – Probably his goals for the first, because he's talked about I'm, those a lot. I'm not sure on the Re- second, to really? be honest. I think, you know, a point that the president made in the in the press conference earlier this month was it's a lot harder to uh, govern than to campaign. And the Iran deal is a classic example of that because, and I am... I know that Obama administration officials have walked Trump officials through the potential consequences of, out the, of this deal. And say what you will about it, but doing so 
alienates our closest allies on the world scale. Right. But more concretely means that Iran, which already has all this, mm -hmm. you know, the sanctions relief that they've gotten over the last year, however long it's been, now has no incentive not to break out and just build a nuclear weapon. So do you want to be the president that upsets all of our allies yeah. and lets Iran, you know, get a weapon, or do you just kind of shove that to the back burner? And I would not be surprised if the Iran deal gets shoved to the and back per burner. per your thinking, Jen, I guess that's something Obama, I mean, Trump could do and say, well, more I looked at it, or he could come up with some BS reason, right, for why he's not going yeah, to Yeah, I am with Justin on that one because, again, this is, Donald Trump is so much about show, and we know so little about what he actually really wants to do and how he's going to do it on anything, just about. I mean, mm -hmm. we know about the wall, but, um, but like the Iran deal is a great example, I think, of something that is so much more complicated and international, and there are grave consequences. And what's the benefit of just saying, all right, I just got rid of the Iran deal, like that he can have a rally and say that and be like, I'm the big man or something, yeah. you know? But then what? Right. You can't have a rally every day for four years <laughs> exactly. and say how great you are. All right. Now, another um, uh, aspect of uh, looking ahead to the Trump administration I'm going to touch on is um, the dealing, and you touched on a little bit earlier, dealings with the media, dealings with the press, dealings with those of us in the press corps. There are going to be a lot of big, lot, lot of changes. What kind of changes do you expect? Daily briefings? I'm a, you should go on this one first because they're probably Well, so... My my fear, but mm -hmm. this is unfounded because there have been no conversations, we don't uh, no substantive right. conversations between the White House Correspondents Association and the Trump campaign, and those are something that's or, or the transition team. That's something that's going to have to happen at some point, but um, we just don't know. It's a black box. What I have observed through the campaign is, I think that the Trump that. Donald Trump and his team see an advantage in intentionally antagonizing the media. And a lot of that can be It certainly to, worked for him during the campaign. It worked for him during the campaign. He needs a foil because he no longer has Barack Obama or Hillary Clinton to, to work <laughs> as a foil. And so the media is one that we know that he is, is fond of sort of using. And I think that a lot of things that we do or need for the basic building blocks of our job seem like privileges to people who don't follow the news closely or don't understand how reporting works. So a great example of this is being on Air Force One, right? Being on Air Force One sounds like something that is very glamorous and fancy and that reporters should feel very like excited and indebted and, and happy about it. And so if he makes a decision to kick us off Air Force One, I don't think there's going to be a lot of people who are losing sleep and worried about it. But there are real logistical reasons for why we're on the plane. Security reasons, staying in a motorcade. If a national emergency happens, if a crisis happens, if we land in a foreign country where we need to be with the president at a time, you know, when there's a security incident, and these are things that I've seen in my four or five years on the beat repeatedly. And it has nothing to do with, you know, the plane, it's great. It's great to, you know, snap a picture of yourself in front of it. That's not 
what we're worried about or what what we're yeah. what the important thing is. Similarly, I mean, there was a discussion already about seating in the briefing room, and I think that's rooted in one them trying to mess with reporters, but two, you know, Steve Bannon and Breitbart feeling like outsiders looking in on the White House right. Correspondents Association and some of the traditions there. There's also real reasons that that seating chart exists. You know, the four or five networks all need to be able to stand in a straight line so that they're not blocking each other's shots before the president comes out to speak. Uh, the first few rows are the news organizations that regularly staff the White House briefing. And so there are reasons for all of these things that aren't obvious and that seem... You know, right. they are things that make us easily mockable, and I think that's going to be a real... And we really don't know how any of it's going to play out. We don't know who the press secretary is going to be, the communications director is going to be. And we don't. And there's something, there's a weird dynamic happening right now where just a couple of days ago, Donald Trump, who still hasn't given a press conference for like a hundred and something days, did an off-the-record yeah, meeting with right. a bunch of reporters and then did a photo, like mm -hmm. a very chummy photo op kind of thing where they all posed and he gave the thumbs up with all the top news outlets and some of their reporters. And, I mean, there's there's just so much in that. <laughs> I mean, it yeah. looks. I don't think it looks good for journalism for it to be, you know, yucking it up with a president-elect like this who's been shutting out the press. But at the same time, why is Donald Trump doing this? It felt like to me like he just played the media so he can look like he's, you know, he's he's a great guy. We're all friends. But then the next day he went right back to trashing the media on Twitter. You know, take Twitter, you know, take tweets from Donald Trump for what, whatever you want. But just looking at the way that this is progressing is just um, – I don't understand when – if or when he's just going to let it go. Uh, yeah, uh, maybe never, maybe never. And it, it has caused a lot of concern. Okay, out of time, but I have to ask you both just one last question. Um, what role is Bernie Sanders going to play uh, in, the, uh, in the next? Do you see Bernie playing any significant role at all? Do you cover Congress? I think he'll, he'll still just be a senator from Vermont. I, I think he'll have a little extra clout because of the last year, but mm -hmm. I think um, he'll get a little more attention because of you know the power he had in the election yeah. cycle but i don't think i don't think he's going to emerge as the number one foe of donald trump on the hill by any means i, I think he's yeah. his voice will just have a little bit more attention on it i think yeah i think he has a real decision to make uh whether he is going to wield that power to build the bernie sanders brand or to build the democratic party up and i think that will have a big impact on how well positioned the party is in four years to run. I don't think Bernie Sanders is going to be the nominee in four years. No. I think he uh, could play a major role in helping consolidate the Democratic Party behind somebody. It's interesting to be a part of it. It's going to be very interesting to watch as well. Jennifer Bender, you can follow her on Huffington Post, HuffingtonPost.com. Thank you so much. Thank you. Happy holidays Thank still you. and happy 2017. Uh, and Justin Sink at Bloomberg, Bloomberg, dot, Bloomberg um, News, isn't it? No. Bloomberg.com, BloombergPolitics.com, whatever. Uh, all right. Just search Bloomberg, turn on your TV. We got, we got it all. You got them both here, exactly. And thanks so much for watching here the Bill Press Show. Happy holidays from all of us. Uh, thank you again, Jen and Justin. <laughs>